Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Lewis and Ann are speaking with a true cultural icon, filmmaker Kevin Smith, who's also made a name for himself as an actor, comedian, public speaker, comic book writer, author, and podcaster. Kevin first came to prominence with the black and white indie comedy flick Clerks back in 1994, which he wrote, directed, co-produced, and acted in as the character Silent Bob of famed stoner duo Jay and Silent Bob. Jay and Silent Bob also appeared in Smith's later films Mallrats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, and Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, which are said primarily in his home state of New Jersey. Longtime listeners to the show should remember our interview with Kevin's hetero lifemate Jason Muse, aka Jay, back in December of 2018. Just a warning here, Lewis is an unabashed Kevin Smith fan, and he totally geeks out in this episode, so apologies for that. But in all seriousness, this is truly one of our best shows, so don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with podcaster, stoner, and all-around cool guy, Kevin Smith. So we this this uh, show is called the Green Rush. We we are mostly a business of cannabis. We say we sit at the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. Cannabis. Um, Wait a second. You're gonna have to explain that to me. What is this cannabis you're talking about? Yeah. Well, it's marijuana. It's weed. You know, it's all that stuff that you've talked about in all of your movies forever. Never mind the movies. It's the fuel of my life. I don't think I have any blood running through me anymore. No more plasma. It's basically just THC. I basically, I, I smoke all day long. I've devised a life and job where I could smoke all day long and nobody could say anything about it because I made myself super productive. The moment I picked up weed at age 38, I was like, you know what, man, I better start, like, I better have something to do because people will call me a stoner. People will say, like, I just gave up or something. So if I'm going to light a joint, and I do want to light a joint because I like who I am when I light a joint. I didn't smoke when I was a kid. I didn't smoke till I was, like, 38 and stuff. I smoked a handful of times in my youth, but I became a stoner at age 38. And when I knew I was going to become a stoner, I said, you always have to tie smoking to something productive, uh, recording a podcast, writing a script, doing something. That way, it's not just you sitting around and nobody could say you're being lazy. And so my pro productivity from 2008 till now, like, you know, I used to just make movies and that was it. Now I do a bunch of shit. Um, that's because I'm always trying to stay busy because I always want to smoke weed because of the deal I made with myself. So I'm always creating something new and that turns into a project and we're always staying busy. So it infused my work. It informs my work to some degree, but it definitely infused and then fueled my work. Um, some people will look at my old, like the movies I made before I was a stoner, although they were about stoning and be like, <laughs> I like those movies better. That's great. As long as you like one of them, I, I don't, I'm, I got no preferences and stuff. The movies I've been making lately, like Tusk, and Red State and stuff, those were made as a stoner. And it's a different side of me I get to work with and play with than I ever had 
prior. And that came from smoking weed as well. My entire podcast, like Empire, came from smoking weed. The live touring, I used to stand on stage, do Q&As at colleges and, sh and theaters and stuff. But with becoming a stoner, suddenly I was like, let's take these out, these podcasts out on the road and see if that works. So we were touring podcasts for anybody else. All of the last, let me see, uh, since Zach and Mary make a porno, so that was 2008, I want to say. So the last 12 years of my life have been informed uh, and, and improved, more importantly, by uh, ingesting cannabis on a regular basis. You know, not even like fly by night. I pop a cookie every once in a while. I'm a believer in the church, man. I was just telling my kid today because my kid, my kid was like asking me a question about something, and uh, I was talking about like, uh, you know, I, I don't really get high like you guys. Like her and her boyfriend fuck around with edibles and shit. Like they'll eat a cookie and go swimming or some such shit. Uh, they were like, you should try it, and I'm like, I there's always too much THC flowing through my system for any edible to work on me. I eat an edible, it's just me eating sugar. It's not, I'm not going to get anything different from it because I, I only ever stop smoking about four or five hours a day when I sleep at night, and then the rest of the time I'm kind of always ingesting. So she's like, so you know, are you high now? And I was like, kid, I I don't get high. I was like, that's that's for like kids and first timers and shit like that. I was like, for me, weed is like coffee for most people. You know how mom is like. I can't function until I get coughed. Don't fucking talk to me until I get coughed. That's me with weed. Like, I can function. I can go about my day, but it just makes the day easier. That's how I greet the day. I wake up, go to the bathroom, hit this desk right here, light a joint, and then plan out the rest of the day and start going to work, start reading the script that I was writing last night and whatnot. So I don't – I know when people online are like, oh, he's, he's a fucking stoner or whatever like that. And some people try to use that term dismissively. Um, I, you know, I, or a lot of people go like, he's high. I, I don't think I ever, ever really am high anymore. You know, that feeling of like, we, I don't do it to party. I do it because it's a part of who I am. It makes me feel whole. It makes me feel real. You know what I'm saying? Do you see it? Do you see it as uh, medicinal then versus recreation the way that you use it? Yeah, absolutely. And look, if I was in charge of things and whatnot, I would make it like, look, if you're a kid, you can't get this unless you got some medical condition. Because, you know, when I was in high school, teenagers would smoke weed all the time and people would be like degenerate burnouts and stoners and stuff like that. As a guy who starts smoking weed at age 38, one thing I know is that no teenager needs this. Life is easy for a teenager. Life is good. Where weed is very useful is when you're at midlife. Like at age 38, I started smoking weed and I, and I was like, oh my God, one day I'm going to die. Like that wasn't because of the weed. That was just because I was middle-aged. Dude, 38 is not middle-aged. I mean, yeah, I'm lucky if it's middle-aged. My old man died at age 67, so I got to be careful and stuff. So for me, it'll be like, oh my God, like I'm past middle-aged. Now I'm 49 at this point. So I'm like, my God, I'm, there's less time in front of me than before but it doesn't matter because then you're like, yeah, but let's let's make the most of what's left. You know, it's like weed doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you more creative. It won't give you ideas that you never had before. What it will do is inhibit that which blocks prosperity. Um, we have a million good ideas across the course of our lifetimes. And, you know, we sit there and go like, oh, what if I did this? I could do this. And then like, I've seen people do this. Maybe I could try that and stuff. And that's the voice of prosperity. That's you. That's the real voice of you telling you from inside, 
try this thing because I bet you it'll work. And at the very least, it'll be fun. Then there's a second voice immediately follows it up where it's just like, why do you think that would work for you? Why do you think you could do that? If this would work, it would work for other people, not you. You're not special. You're stupid. Don't. That's a dream. Go back to work, blah, blah, blah. What weed does is it kind of inhibits the second voice. Doesn't kill it. That's always going to be there. But like basically when you get this kind of feeling of like, oh, why would you think that would work? Why bother doing it? Other people have done it better. You've never done this before. Why are you going to do it? And then you just go like, yeah, but it'll be fun to try. And what if it does become something? Because the future is a fiction that we constantly write for ourselves. You know, they say worry is interest paid on a due uh, debt that never comes due. Uh, when we sit around and go like, oh, man, what's going to happen? Or I bet you this is going to happen. Or I think this is going to happen. Or what if this happens? That's all creative writing. Because unless you're you know, a, ma a magus or a wizard, you can't see into the future. So that's just making shit up. That's creative writing. So for any people like I'm not a writer, you write all the time. You write this horrible future for yourself where everything goes wrong, where it's doom and gloom. And in a world where that's a fiction, there's no proof that that's going to be the case, that you're literally just prognosticating and making shit up. Why not make up the opposite story? If we're just making up stories, make up a fucking story. We get bit by a radioactive spider and everything fucking works out. Like it's the same difference. And people are like, well, that's facetious. But I'm like, it, no, it's not. Because you know that you're going to get bit by a radioactive spider just as much as you know that the world's going to end next week because of everything that's going on. Nobody knows shit, man. Like, we're human beings. We're limited in that way. And until we start hearing from the future, from broadcasts or whatever the fuck, from people who've traveled through time, you don't know what's going to fucking happen. So if you're just going to write a fiction about what's going to happen, write a positive one. And weed allows you to do that. And I don't mean literally write, although you can do that. I just mean in your head as well. Weed allows you to kind of clear the cobwebs and go like, you're just listening to the spooky voice. Listen to the prosperous voice. Listen to prosperity instead. Listen to the voice that's actually trying to tell you to make something as opposed to break something. Because that's all that worry does. It just breaks the future. You're just looking at it going, it's all wrong, it's bad. Everything's gonna go in the shitter, it's in the toilet. You don't know. So you might as well make up the positive one, man. And if people are like, oh, you're so positive, what's wrong with that? And shit? I'll tell you right now, weed makes that all possible. It doesn't induce it, but it definitely sets the stage for it, man. Weed will inhibit that second voice. Or even if that second voice comes at you and tries to talk you out of doing something, weed will just remind you like, yeah, but the adventure is in trying the thing. Who gives a fuck if the thing works out? Who gives a fuck if you're the world's best at doing that thing? It's trying the thing. Because the only fucking failure in this life is not trying the thing that you want to try, that you're pretty sure you could do, that you've seen other human beings do, and you're a fucking human being, so why not you? Not trying that thing, that's the only failure. And I say that as a guy who made yoga hosers, and everyone's like, what a fucking failure. No. I liked yoga hosers, dude. I liked it. Not not making that movie, that would have been the failure because I could make that movie. I had the means to do so. I had the desire, the script, the cast. The only reason not to do it was fear, inhibition. What if people don't like it? What if it don't make money? What if it's a piece of shit? I never thought about that before any of the other movies I make because it's all about like just fulfill the vision. You can't let shit like that in. What if, what if? That's more creative fictional writing. So I just started flipping that script. That's how I got to Clerks. Instead of listening to a voice that was like, 
Why do you think you could make a movie? Like nobody else around here has ever done it. Why you? You've never even went to fucking film school. Why do you think you could do this? Instead of listening to that voice, I wasn't a stoner yet, but I listened to the other voice that was just like, why not me? Like, it's not like they got superheroes doing this shit. They're not robots from another dimension. They're human beings just like me. Weed, like the, the, my youth, the folly of youth, the spirit of youth. I was 21 when I saw Richard Linklater's Slacker. It made me want to be a filmmaker. That's what led to Clerks. That, that, I had the, I had youth on my side. The whole world was fucking in front of me, man. So I didn't need no weed. I had like, oh my God, I was living on a dream. Now I'm 49. Now I've seen much more of the world. My dreams have come true and stuff. But what I see in the distance is death. Like eventually this all ends and death sucks even more once you really like your life. Like I love my life. I don't ever want to die. And when I was on the heart, uh, table having a heart attack, I was like, oh man, this sucks. Because not only am I letting go of life, I'm letting go of a life where people are like, I like that guy. He made clerks. Like I got to leave a popular kid. I never thought I'd be that in my life. So I desperately <laughs> want to hold on to life as much as possible and stuff. And life isn't just this shit, your pulse and being above ground. Life is living. Life is creating a new adventure, adding a new chapter, heading in a direction you never thought you'd head before. Even though you're you're known for one thing, striding off toward another adventure, even though you may not have the rest of your life to make that adventure pan out or something for you. Uh, for you. So for me, like we came along the right time. I was working on Zach and Mary make a porno. I worked with the great Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen is one of the greatest stoners the world's ever known, certainly the first productive stoner I've ever known in my life, in as much as he was always blazed like I am today, but he was always working <laughs> like I am today. He was always, he was working on Zack and Mary, he was making my movie, but it, he was ad-libbing three better versions of my movie throughout the whole process while he was in his trailer with Evan Goldberg writing a movie they were gonna go make next, planning their future. Like, I was like, this kid's a stoner. Like, he don't watch TV, he's always busy and shit. He introduced me to the notion of the productive stoner. He was like, there's lots of us. They're all over this business, Kev. He's like, people get up, smoke weed every day, man, and still get things done. So he opened my eyes to that possibility. And still, even then, I didn't go like, well, I'm becoming a stoner then. I smoked with him on the last day of Zach and Mary Make a Porno. My whole production on Zach and Mary Make a Porno my friend Malcolm Ingram keeps coming up to me and he's going like, hey man, Seth wants to smoke with you. And I was like, I don't smoke weed. I smoke weed like five times in my whole life. And he's like, he don't know that. And he knows you made Jay and Silent Bob. So he's a cinematic stoner icon. You're a cinematic stoner icon. You gotta fucking smoke together. <laughs> I was like, I could never smoke and make a movie. That's something like now it's the reverse. I could never make a movie and not smoke. <laughs> so you know, I was like, I could never smoke and make a movie. That's ridiculous. I was like, maybe at the end of the show. And we were at the last day of the show doing pickup shots and like, that was it. It was just me and Seth and the crew, all the rest of the cast was gone. So I said to him at a certain point, I said, hey man, how about later on tonight, we pop up to the editing room, watch some of the cut footage I put together and smoke some of that weed I've been hearing so much about. He was like, finally, uh. And so we went up <laughs> to the editing room and we smoked. He had some great weed from California. We were in Pittsburgh and man, oh man, did I just love who I was when I smoked. I let go of all my shit. There was no more of this, this is the portrait of Kevin Smith I want people to see. There was no more portrayal. Suddenly I was like, oh, I'm just gonna be me. Fuck what people expect or fuck who I'm supposed to be. Like, I've already got a bunch of license in this life because of the movies I make. Just fucking embrace it wholehearted. Like, be this person. No pretense of Kevin Smith. Be Kevin Smith and stuff. So I didn't start smoking weed on the regular. I just had a great night with him. And I was like, man, that's fucking good. And then it wasn't for a few months after that 
It's 4th of July. I think we wrapped the movie in like April or something like that, April and March. So 4th of July, me and wife are sitting around the house, me and Jennifer. And, you know, nobody's here at the house. She's like, let's do something fucked up. I was like, yeah, man, let's like break into a church and fuck on the altar. And she's like, no. She's like, let's let's do something fucked up in our house. That's been done in New York City. Of course. (laughs) Of course. I read about it. I was like, why not me? So. I, I, you know, I was, I just wanted to be transgressive because we live in, in a house with her parents live with us and our kid of course lives with us. So they were out of the house, like Byron and Gail, her, her parents were gone. They took Carly with them. So I was like, let's just be fucked up kids. And so she said, there's weed in the safe that Trish, our friend Trish gave us years ago. And I was like, Ooh, I haven't smoked weed in a long time. Not since Seth Rogen. I said, yeah, let's, let's smoke that weed. And that was the second greatest night of my weed spoken life. Cause I got to hang out with a whole new version of my wife. You know, I thought I knew my wife. We'd been together for many years and stuff at that point. Suddenly I was meeting a new version of my wife through a different filter altogether, man. Losing the pretense of like, I'm her husband. He's, she's my wife and we're married and we got a kid. Suddenly just seeing her as this organic human being in a real, you know, early stonery kind of way. Uh, we took a cab, went to a restaurant, got all this delicious food, fed each other like idiots and shit, had sex. It was fucking amazing. I was like, you know what? I said, I'm going to start smoking weed on a regular basis. I like this weed and I like who I am when I am, uh, I'm on weed. And so from now on, every day around six o'clock, I'm going to have a joint. And I set that up for myself. And so I started doing that for a week. Every night, six o'clock, I'd like to do it with you. Was she into she it with put, you? She didn't imbibe. She's a, she likes uh, wine. So okay. she's a drinker, not a, she's a, what is it? Grains, not greens, so to speak. So I started this journey by myself really and stuff. So I would smoke every night, six o'clock. Then I started having this conversation. Well, you don't really have a real job. You don't have to wait till six o'clock. You can probably start smoking three o'clock, right? Like, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good time. By three o'clock, I'm kind of done with work. So the next week I started smoking at three o'clock. And then I was just like, well, let's be honest, man. Like fucking, you don't even have to wait for lunch. Like fucking probably life would be a lot better if you were smoking by 11 o'clock. And I was like, right on. So I'll smoke, you know, when I, at breakfast time. And I did that for like half a week. And then I was like, you know, you could take this shit right to the moment you wake up, man. That <laughs> would make everything better. Think about how good life got after six o'clock. Imagine if your day begins like this and suddenly you've got the rest of your day ahead of you. And I became- How did Jen react to that, with that whole transition? What a great question. Interestingly, uh, uh, supportively. I think I was going through like, not a midlife crisis, but something of a breakdown at that point, a crossroads and stuff. And Zach and Miri came out and did really poorly and I, we all thought it would do good. Not made, a great you know, fucking film, by the way. Thank you. And it, it did well enough, but we all thought it would make like a hundred million bucks. We had the guy from Knocked Up, so we're like, this is gonna be huge. And it was just kind of a standard Kevin Smith movie box office. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I was, how old was I? 38 at that point. So I'm reaching my forties and stuff. And so, you know, for lack of a better description, let's call it a midlife crisis. She saw me in this place of like, for the first time ever, like I had the blues and I just didn't really want to do anything. And I thought I was a loser and not good at shit and blah, blah, blah. So when I started smoking weed, I think she let it go. Cause she was like, well, he seems happier now. Like, you know, he doesn't seem to be as bummed out as he was. He lights a joint, he smokes, and suddenly he sees the world in a different way. And then he wants to start writing or recording podcasts. So I think she saw it in the beginning as therapeutic. And again, she'd been a wine drinker our whole marriage, and you know that was her release. And I never really had a release. You know, sometimes I play video games or whatever, um, and I go on my my website and on the message board and stuff, like before Twitter and stuff. But that was always kind of 
more work, right? Even though my work is fun, it's still work related. So there was nothing that wasn't related to making movies or the business of Kevin Smith. And I think she saw me smoking weed as like, well, now he's got something to chillax with. Finally, he's got a way to let off some steam. And as it slowly progressed into me just like, oh, I'm gonna have a joint a day, to like liter legitimately being a fucking dyed in the wool greensman, traveler of the green, man, where, you know, so much so where I, I'm always, I, I know where the next weed is coming from. I'm not, it's not enough to have today's weed. I gotta know where the next month's weed were, is coming from to make <laughs> sure that it's always there because it's a fundamental part of my life. Some people will try to argue, oh, well, that's addiction, Kevin, but I can stop. I put it down for days at a time, weeks at a time and stuff. Um, I could easily do it. I don't get irritable. It's not like I got to go through withdrawals. But during that period, I'm overwhelmed by one thought. You know, no matter what I'm doing, no matter how busy I am, I'm always like, yeah, but why aren't you smoking weed? That would just make it all better. And so eventually I go back and, and start smoking weed. For me, it became religion. It became spiritual. Uh, it became the fuel of my creativity. Not didn't make me creative. But when I was sitting down to be creative, spark up and like that smoke just clears away all the inhibitions. Suddenly you're not like, well, I'm not going to write that because that's stupid. You're like, you know what? I'm going to try to write it. Let me see what happens when it's done. Maybe it'll be better than I thought it would be and stuff. It's the spirit of adventure. And that adventure has now taken me like, let me see, that's 2008. It's 12 years. It's been a 12-year odyssey where I've been in this business 26 years since like clerks happened and stuff. So I've almost been a stoner for half the time that I've been making movies and shit like that. And, you know, I love my entire career. Uh, and of course the early days when everyone was like, he's a genius and he's new, that's long since gone. But like, that was fun, you know, being the new kid on the block. But I've enjoyed the second half of my career more than the first half of my career because I've literally enjoyed it. The first half of my career was spent worrying, would we get to make another one? Let's make another one fast just in case they won't like it. Let's make another one after that. Or, all right, we'll move into the next one. We were so busy just making shit and moving forward that I never stopped and appreciated the process. But I never is, really- Is that the weed or is that maturity? Because, you know, as we, we're basically the same age and, you know, I just turned 50 and I am so much more comfortable in my own skin today than I was when I was 25. And yeah, I love smoking weed. And actually I don't smoke anymore because I'm worried about COVID and it's a respiratory illness and I only, only eat edibles. But I'm at the point where like I used to have a bag of fucks and I used to give a fuck to everybody I, I was concerned about. And my bag of fucks is completely empty now. And I think that's a function of age, you know, and I think, you know, is it the weed or is it maturity? I would definitely agree. Um, the longer you live and do a thing, the more you're like, oh, like, I, you know, maybe I don't have to be concerned about this. I, I, I've, I've got it, so to speak. But weed <clears throat> definitely made it so the last half of my career, the, the, you know, the last 12 years, so much more enjoyable. There was so much more risk taking, which is where like art happens. And I'm not saying the best art because a lot of people didn't go for some of the shit I made in the last few years, but I loved it. And at the end of the day, it's very masturbatory art. Like you're trying to please yourself, the artist. And at the end, after that, you're like, I hope the audience likes it too. But first and foremost, it's about you. So suddenly, I used to do the job without weed and, you know, it, it was, I was always there for the moment, but never in the moment. And so ever since I've become a stoner, 
I can be working in the moment and still be in the moment. I, you know, now I don't direct the movies <clears throat> as much as host the movies. So like I do a lot more talking to the entire cast and crew. Like everything begins with me telling them exactly where we are in the day, the production, the universe, how great they've done so far, what we're hoping to get here. And I go real and go deep and go quick and talk about how like I almost fucking died. So I don't have time to just be facetious anymore. This shit means something, ladies and gentlemen, like it's a goofy ass movie, but I've now done these goofy ass movies long enough to know that this goofy ass movie will be the one thing that saves somebody's life one day, go figure. I know that because I've been told that about the rest of my goofy ass movies. So what we do here is important. You should see, like I go up and direct Supergirl, man. Like I, I come off like a priest where I'm just like, the work we do here is sacred because the people it touches I've met in my real life and their lives are miserable, man, but they fucking love that one hour a week when Kara takes them to a different place. Like it's important. So we're not just, we're all punching a clock and cashing checks and this is better than working for a living because we get to make pretend, but never forget that we're making something that's gonna outlast us. They'll be watching this shit when we're dead. And even though we have to make one this week and you guys will make another one that week after and right away another one after that, this is going to be the most important hour of somebody's life at the right time. And they will revisit it over and over again as a source of comfort when things get miserable. So as that guy, like artists, you know, uh, people on, on a crew to cast, they love that version of the director, Kevin Smith, because you're you're giving them the feels in a good way. You know, not the, not the bad way on the movie set. Going right <laughs> for the heart where, you know, this is why we do it. You got to reduce it back to like, why are you here? And yes, we like the money and the time, but you're here because you wanted to spend your life playing. You didn't want to be like everybody else who put their shit away and became an adult. You were like, let's keep making pretend. You're breathing rarefied air. So let's deal with life from that breathing of rarefied air place. Let's deal with it right from the heart, from the feels. And weed fuels that. So even if I just got older, like, you know, with maturity and like, now I understand my job better and stuff, it wouldn't have made me as hard on my sleeve, which is kind of the key to how I direct now. It's the thing that people respond to and react to the most. So weed definitely being getting older helps, but weed helps so much more. So you just I just watched uh, Reboot this weekend and I saw it as a complete and total love letter to your daughter and to Jay's daughter and to your fans. And to myself, you, don't forget. And to and yourself, hundred percent. Look, I, 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 like I said, you and I are basically the same age. The three of us are all Jersey people. You know, I grew up in North Jersey and grew up down the shore right by you. West Long Branch. Um, West Long Branch. Are you serious? So yes. fucking how many times you eat at the ink well your life? Oh my God. So many times. That's my still favorite there, restaurant. I'm in LA now, but yeah. It's, it's still there. Still there. It's it's yeah. my favorite restaurant on the planet. It's in Long Branch, West Long Branch. Um late it, night service. Late nights, like one of the only places other than a 24-hour diner, and mm -hmm. like after a while, you want to get away from diner. Inkwell had the the uh, currency of cool, hipster as fuck before there was such yep. a thing, and yep. it was right down the street from Monmouth University, Monmouth That's College. That's where I graduated so, from. Yeah. Did you go to Monmouth? Holy yeah. shit. That's yeah. where they shot Annie, the first Annie yeah. movie. Yeah, that's my wedding kid. photos are in are in Wilson Hall on that's the stairs. Terrible. and Yeah, it was amazing. I love that place, man. I was yeah. supposed to do a show at Monmouth University in March, um, but then everything got shut down. So we had to move it until the fall, hopefully. But in any event, so I love the Inkwell, man. Like, even though I didn't go to college there, all the college kids would be there yeah. and I was kind of their age and stuff. It was just a cool place for like young yeah. people to hang out. I hung my clerk's audition notice 
at the Inkwell. That was one of the only oh, places really? I could find that where I was like, the people here might get behind this. And so I hung an audition yeah. notice there. I love the Inkwell. All right. So That's wait, you're amazing. from you're from my neck of the woods. Where are you from? I grew up in Tenafly up north. Uh, I know where fucking Tenafly is. Holy and shit. And I live in Short Hills now. You know, oh, my I, God. Short Hills Mall is where my, I got my wife her engagement ring. The uh, I went, oh, We went to, to a Tiffany. Like, I, you know, yeah. my whole life growing up in Jersey, the only thing I knew about engagement rings was like the De Beers commercial or some such shit where they're like, it's, you know, uh, two weeks of your salary or some such shit. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, <laughs> my salary, months, dude. I, is that what it was? <laughs> I, I only so. made 200 bucks a week. So if you did extrapolate that, $800. <laughs> so I should have gotten a $1,600 uh, engagement ring. And that would have blown my fucking mind if I'd known that was going to be the price and shit. And so Jennifer, who becomes my wife, she's my girlfriend at the time and she pregnant as hell. So I'm like, we should get married. So we, we go up to, you know, I, I was like, I gotta get, we gotta get a ring. And, and she's that's like, the We're, fancy mall. The Short Hills mall is the fancy mall. And that, the it's, no, it's no Monmouth mall. I married no way. And I was not prepared for it. Cause I was ready for the Monmouth mall. Yeah. Cause there's like a, you know, cheap jewelry store there that I used yeah. to get bracelets from and shit. Yep. And she's like, well, if we're doing this, we should probably go to Tiffany. I was like, Tiffany, like in the movies, Tiffany. And she's like, yeah, that's a real place. And she's like, they got it in New York. And I was like, well, all right. I mean, let's look into it. I looked it up online. I was like, they got one in Short Hills in New Jersey. Like it's not far from us. Let's go there. So we'd never been to the Short Hills mall. She's not even from Jersey, right? I am, but she's come from first uh, upstate New York, then Florida, and then she lived out in California for eight years, and then boom, bam, she's living in Jersey. So she's already got this opinion like, oh my God, how, how many fucking malls do you people have and stuff? <laughs> so she been to all my malls, Mammoth Mall, Seaview uh, Square Mall, uh, the, uh, the, the Woodbridge Freehold. Mall. Oh, the yep. Yeah, Woodbridge Park Commons, Mall, yeah. Metro yep. Park as well. So those are my malls, but I never went to Short Hills. So we have to go because they got a Tiffany's. And I walk into this fucking mall and it smells like money. This is one of the most <laughs> it, it's fancy. Yeah. Oh my God. So fancy. So yeah. no wonder they're fancy. They got a fucking Tiffany in the motherfucker. Yep. So we go to this Tiffany and stuff. There's the, we're looking at engagement rings. Uh, you know, this is the thing, the one with the diamond on it, right? So there's three that she chooses. She's like, any one of these. And it's like, you know, little, middle, big. So she's like, any one of these would be amazing. And naturally, like, I barely know this woman and shit, and she's pregnant with my child, and I don't want to come off cheap. So I'm like, well, let's just get the big one. Like, you like, if you like the big one, let's get the big one. And she was like, well, if you want to. And I was like, all right, let's get the big one. And so I tell the guy, uh, we'll take the big one. And then the guy gets the ring, puts it on a pillow, and he goes, uh, will you come with me, please? And then he brings me into a back office where I sit down in a really comfy chair and there's a fucking bar. And he's just like, can I get you a drink? And I was like, this is class, man. Fucking Hills <laughs> Hall is really classy. And I was like, oh, just a glass of water would be great. And I sit down, I have a glass of water and stuff. And then uh, he puts the pillow down with the ring on it and he turns the price tag over. And it was more than a fucking car, like more than a Mercedes Benz <laughs> in 19, you know, 99. And I couldn't fucking believe it. And all I can remember is like, it's supposed to be two weeks of my salary. Like, and, and when I worked at Quick Stop, my salary wasn't very high. Who does this sort of thing? But I couldn't turn her away. You know, I couldn't go back outside and be like, you know what, I changed my mind. Let's get the little ring and shit. So I committed to it, man. I'm still paying that fucking ring off. 21 years later. <laughs> but we that just was nice that he did it. that, that he didn't like hey, dime so you out in the middle of, you know. It, it, on the floor, the man. Because I yeah. think he knew. He was like, this poor Central like, oh. Jersey scrub, he has no idea what I'm about to tell him and shit. It was mind bending. So I know both of your areas very well. <laughs> and back in Jersey, I was not a stoner. Like the first time I ever I smoked was weed, of course, was in New Jersey. But 
only, you know, we didn't have it around us all the time. And it was mostly stems and fucking seeds. Oh, no, and it shit. was there. You just didn't know where it was. Jay knew. So we talked to Jay about a year ago, uh, December of 18, and he told us that he was completely clean now. And you are the big stoner. So where is the that moment of the switch where he went from being Jay Muse, the 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 druggie, to you being Kevin Smith? And and how does how do you guys reconcile that? I, I it's easy to reconcile. He, he doesn't care. But it, the funny thing is, like, you know, I spent years being like, stop being a drug addict, stop doing drugs. And then when I became what you know, my mother uh, back in the '80s would have argued is a drug addict. Jason never like said anything. He never gave me a hard time in return because Jason smoked weed for one second on his drug evolutionary scale. That was his first uh, drug probably. First probably a beer, then he had weed, but he didn't spend a lot of time with weed. He kind of moved on uh, from weed and then moved into the much harder stuff. So at one point I was always trying to get him to quit heroin. So when I think of drugs, I really, that's, I think of that. When I started smoking weed, he knew that like, he's like, weed, <laughs> like, go on, you're fine. And also I think he had the same thing that Jennifer had, which is like, like, as long as I've known Kevin, he has no release. He doesn't drink. He doesn't fucking party or anything like that. He's always like, you know, fucking working on his shit. So this, like, maybe it'll be a nice break for him. Like I'd smoked once with Jason Mews back in 1997 when we were on the we were at south by southwest uh with chasing amy and jay had some weed I love on that him. movie that's my favorite movie of yours thank Sorry. you thank <laughs> you so much um we we Dogma smoked. is mine thank you thank you. i love both of those movies. um he uh, he had weed we were in austin texas and we got really high and we were giggling like crazy and stuff like playing this rap song over and over and laughing having a blast and stuff so he moved on from weed to harder stuff and in my perception, having been raised in the 80s with like, just say no, you know, I could do the simple basic math in my head. And when I say simple and basic, I mean uneducated and be like, he smoked weed, he got to heroin. So I'm not, there's good thing I didn't fuck with weed as much as that and blah, blah, blah. So there was always a bias built in Then Seth broke that bias, not intentionally, but just by the, by being a productive stoner like he is. Normalized it, almost. He normalized yeah. it for me, where I was like, oh, this isn't for freaks and broken people. So yeah. Jay stopped, he's been clean, he's coming up July, like he's had a few times that he stopped and started again, but he's been on the longest stretch of sobriety he's ever had in his life since you know he started imbibing back when he was in his late teens, um, coming up on 10 years in July. So That's he's awesome. been clean and sober for 10 years. I have been a stoner for 12 at this point. Yeah, that's right, because I was smoking weed uh, before he got clean. And and one of the, like, smoking weed, like, got us to Jay and Silent Bob get old because he was trying to get clean, and he saw me doing podcasts. And because I was a stoner, not only was I way into podcasts, but I was like, I'm going to open up a podcast theater. That's where Hollywood Babylon came from. And that's where Jay and Silent Bob get old. Our podcast came from because he would hang out at the theaters and be like, I want to do one of these shows. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? He's like, I don't know. We can talk about you should talk about anything. Let's just talk about stuff. And I was like, well, I'm not just going to talk about like fucking pussy and fucking weed. Like you got to have something. to. If, if you really want to do this, I said, 
What you need to talk about is the drugs. You need to come clean to the world and talk about being an addict because your friends know, and we're always trying to keep it from the rest of the world, but if the rest of the world knew, then everyone's got their eye on you. And maybe you'd be a better chance at staying And you clean. get to tell the story, not other people telling it for you. Exactly. I was like, and you get to earn off of it as well because we'll do it at my little theater and fucking like charge 20 bucks a ticket and stuff. So we started doing that show together and, and I was a stoner already at that point. So primarily he probably never said anything because he was trying to get back in. He had been out because we had a falling out because he fell off the wagon and I was like, you're not allowed in my life, my house anymore and stuff. So he was trying to get clean. So I doubt that he was ever going to be like, hey, why am I trying to get clean when you're fucking smoking weed? But the one thing he was always pretty clear about was like he didn't want to partake in it. Like, I remember we were making, like, he on his first run at sobriety, which went, like, five years, um, which would be from Jane Silent Bob Strike Back to when we made Zach and Mary make a porno. I remember being, uh, we had a party at my apartment while we were uh, in production on Zach and Miro's, Mary during the Oscars. And so the whole cast came and the crew and stuff. And, you know, we had a lot of booze and shit. But then at one point, Seth comes up to me and he goes, hey, man, can I smoke a joint in here? And it was so like, fuck it, it threw me. Cause like, I didn't live in that world where people were like, can I smoke a joint in here? Like, and so I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess you can smoke a joint. I'm a grown up, this is my place. Yeah, you can smoke a joint. And so him and Craig were smoking joints and they were playing foosball with Jay. And then Jay like put his shirt over his mouth, like a filter and stuff. And then he had to bow out of the game. I was like, what's the matter? He's like, I can't afford to catch no secondhand smoke. Cause I'm on a program, I'm trying to stay tight and stuff. So I remember when I became a stoner and Jason was like, let's do a show together. I was like, well, okay. And, but you know, I, I just want to, I smoke weed now. And so I don't know, if I'm not going to smoke it during the show. It's not allowed because the zoning laws and shit, but like, I don't know if that's going to trigger you as you're trying to get clean. And he was like, no, I don't care about weed. He's like, oh my God, you could smoke all the weed you want in my face. That's not my problem. My problem is heroin, Oxycontin, stuff like that. So his relationship with my weed has been very like positive. I think he sees all the positive that's come from it. Like we were never gonna make Jane Silent Bob reboot. There was never gonna be a second Jane Silent Bob movie if I wasn't a stoner. For years he'd been asking and I was like, we did that once, why would we ever do it again? And it was only being a stoner that I was like, you know what, like we would tour Jane Silent Bob Good Old. First it started in a 50 seat theater that I own, Smodcastle, but then we took it out into the world we were selling out like 6,000 seaters and stuff. And it was hard to make the argument that nobody cares about Jay and Silent Bob. We did that years ago. There's still life in that fucking corpse. And Jason kept like waving the flag for it. So after I became a stoner, I stopped saying no necessarily to things. I started being more open to the idea of like, well, let's see. And after touring Jay and Silent Bob Get Old just as a podcast for like, I think at that point, five, six years, you know, I knew he was right. I was like, look, if these people will show up and watch us sit around and talk to each other about movies we made 20 years ago, what if we brought a new movie to them? And that's kind of where Reboot was born. All of it comes from weed. So Jason's relationship with my smoking weed, very positive. Also, like the his wife, Jordan, runs our business and stuff, and she's also a stoner as well. And so he knows the benefit of like, stoner stoning he's seen us both off weed and on weed and he prefers both of us <laughs> on weed yeah so you you are a multimedia artist right you make films you do tv you've i don't know about the books. art part but i'm definitely multimedia something <laughs> <laughs> well whatever man i mean 
you know, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan. This is like a highlight literally of, of my life. Um, and I know it sounds goofy. That's not you know, goofy at all. I, Thanks for affording me a place to smoke weed and talk about weed at the same time. Anytime. You know, this is our 150th episode of this show. Um, and when we oh, that's started, awesome. I'm, I'm here for a landmark episode. Yeah, that's cool. you are. So, yeah. So when we started, I made a list of people that I wanted to interview and you were literally the top of my list. Um, so this is a gift and I really number appreciate one, that. That's incredibly sweet. But number two, that you must know that, uh, like, uh, you were never going to interview me. I was just going to start talking. <laughs> yeah, we knew whatever. Who gives Fine. A fuck? But, 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 you <laughs> but so far so good. I've actually gotten yeah, this- to like four questions that's a record <laughs> so but you, like film you make movie uh, so you make movies you make amazing tv shows comic right. books and podcasts which is the the medium do you think it speaks most to who you are which one says this is kevin hands down podcasting because movies require pictures and it takes a certain uh talent or aptitude to put a bunch of pictures together tell a visual story i don't have that natural aptitude like i i've I've always referred to filmmaking for me since it's not my first language as kind of like um i took spanish too like i took four years of spanish in high school but me being a filmmaker is like finishing Spanish too, and then moving to Spain and trying to pass. Like <laughs> it's it's not my first language. I it I don't speak it normally. I don't think visually, and it's a purely visual medium. But you know, I've loved movies my whole life, and then I fell in love with indie film, and I was like, oh, let me just try it out. So that opened me up to the world, introduced me to the world. It was absolutely uh, phenomenal. Uh, cracked my universe open. Uh, and I thought, you know, I, I dreamed, young Kevin Smith dreamed of being taken seriously as a director, like that people would call him a director and that shit came true and stuff. But podcasting feels like the natural muscle. Podcasting feels like the moment in the Matrix where Neo's just like, no, and the bullets fall and shit like that. Like me talking, that's that's the best possible version of Kevin Smith you're ever going to get. Not one that's hidden behind a script and hidden behind visuals and actors and stuff like that. You know, just concentrated straight from the brain pan out, I think is like the optimal version of me. And that's what podcasting allowed me to do, where I could just have my own show. I always dreamed of having a radio show because I listened to Howard Stern growing up and I loved how frank and candid he was. You know, like just... You know, he didn't spin records. He just fucking talked about his life. And his life was interesting because he knew famous people at work. But at home, he, he sounded like my fucking dad, like just getting in trouble with his family and fucking like he, he didn't have it great. He would talk about having a small dick, like everything about it was confessional. And you were like, I, I, I feel like I know this guy when I always dreamed one day I'd love to have something like that because I'd love to just sit around and fucking talk to my friends and shit. And in Jersey, in our neck of Jersey, they got that station, The Rat. And I was always like, maybe one day, like after the film thing happened, I was like, maybe I can get rich enough to buy The Rat. Then I'll have my own little radio station and then I could do radio whenever I want, spin records and shit like that. That would have been cost prohibitive as fuck. Um, Thank God the internet was invented and one day I realized, oh, a podcast is literally just a radio show on the internet, and you're reaching way more than people who you're going to reach with an antenna. You could potentially reach the world. So I was like, I can live my dream of having a radio show, and I could do, I could even curse on it as well. And so I started diving into podcasting. That is my natural habitat. If somebody put a gun to my head and said, you can only pick one fucking thing to do from now until the end of your life, 
it would be podcasting. I could, Amen, I could man. do theater of the mind. Like, I don't have to make a movie. I could tell you a movie and you could build it in your head, do all the heavy lifting and your movie in your head going to be way better than any movie that I fucking try to make for you and stuff. So I love podcasting, but film is the sexy film makes the podcasting possible because people will pay attention to you because you got a film, right? They're like, Oh, you made a movie. I'll listen to you for a few minutes. And so once you got your attention, then you hook your claws in them and sell them something else like podcasting, like listen to this show, listen to this show and stuff like that. So I, it helps to maintain the two making a movie gives me something to talk about in the podcast. So content creates content. And then I realized at a certain point that that's what life is all about creating content. Cause that's the only thing I get to do in this world. Like whatever I make and leave behind me and I'm not an architect, so it wasn't going to be a building or something like that is my movies. And now my recordings, like the movies, I can only do so many of those in a lifetime and it's expensive and cost prohibitive and stuff. But a podcast, you can sit down and do it by yourself. I do it with people. I've done it with famous people I've always admired. I've done it with best friends. Sometimes I sit here by myself, read comic books, or just talk stream of consciousness. It is so pure and so beautiful, so perfect, a medium that anybody could get into. You don't have to be predisposed to want to be an entertainer. You can just sit around and talk about comic books, talk about sports, talk about fucking weed. weed. And nobody expects you weed. Nobody expects you to be an expert. They just want to hear your perspective. The podcast is about the individual and it heightens the individual, puts the individual on a pedestal because for that brief shining moment in time, the audience cares only about your life and how it intersects with theirs. Film, you're selling somebody, a commercial adventure, escapism. Podcasting, you're selling them yourself. And that is, that's the purest form of communication back and forth. That's what we do without podcasting, one-on-one -on -one with people every day. I'm gonna try to get my ideas across to you because they're crammed in here and they're clouded and I, maybe I don't know how to express them correctly, but through this podcast, through all this talking, you're gonna know what I'm trying to say and hopefully you identify with it, communicate, and then you come back for more. Well, look, there is no way that you and I or Ann and you would have ever spoken were it not for a podcast. You know, we've, we've talked with Mike Tyson. We've talked with Ziggy Marley. We've talked with Congressman Earl Blumenauer. We're interviewing him this Friday. Like none of this would happen. I'm a freaking little nebbishy Jewish guy who likes to smoke weed from New Jersey. And I get to talk and bullshit with you. Like this is, I love podcasting, man. It is my favorite thing. There was a hole in the universe for weed smoking nebbishy Jewish guys or Jewish guys who talk to people and you filled it. That's, that's beautiful. That's fucking rare. We all see holes everywhere in life, but we don't always think to fill it. Or maybe we dream about it going like, I could probably fucking fill that. But then you're like, ah, I'm not the person. This was her that. idea. I blame Anne. This was all her idea. Well, behind every dumbass man is a woman with a brilliant <laughs> idea for a good podcast. What was the idea? You were like, let's sit down and talk. Uh, I did it. I actually pitched it for a client. I mean, we do PR in our regular real lives and I pitched it for another client or someone, no, someone had pitched it to me and I, I forwarded it to Lewis and I said, what if we did one? I think that was it. Like it wasn't anything that was big and special. And I said, I'll, I'll do all the research. I'll do the questions. I'll produce it. And Lewis was like, well, you'll be on it with me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I'm a behind the scenes chick. I'm like, this is not my, this no is, this is not comfortable for me. Alone. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I again, I like behind the scenes and and Lewis was like well too bad you're doing this and it put my feet to the fire and gave me a new skill set so 150 episodes what, later what I love about that is 
<clears throat> like I, 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 I'm in a business where I deal with PR and I deal with uh, people who say, you should do a podcast. Like that's become the default in the industry now. If you go pitch a TV show uh, and they don't say yes, they'll say, you should try it out as a podcast, test it out, see if it has any traction that way and stuff. And all the people that tell people you should do this, never fucking do it themselves. So what I love about it is you guys are like in the business of, hey man, if you're smart, you'll do a podcast. And you were like, let's take our own advice. Yeah. And you're doing it. So exactly I would right. listen to that coming from you. Like if I was a client and I'd be like, podcast, what the fuck? You can literally be like, I yeah. do it. Here it is. Here's how simple it is. Yeah. We built a phone. And also in, you did it like not going, this will be my primary business, but in this best of all possible worlds, there's a world where it becomes the primary business and PR becomes the thing that you used to do. You know what I'm saying? Like we all We're have not to there yet. <laughs> We're you trying. never can fucking tell how one gets yeah. there though. That's the thing. If you're no. not there yet, that's fine. But like being able to spin multiple plates, like our parents focused on one thing, you know, getting a job was tough enough or whatever, getting a profession and holding on to it. Cause if you have a boss, that means you could always be fired. But we live in a world where a lot of us are our own bosses, work for ourselves or build up our own kind of thing. If you could spin multiple plates that way, if one of those plates falls and let's say one gets fired from a fucking job, you got something over here that you could just yep. pivot to and yep. keep moving forward, man. It's always best to do many things. I tell kids, particularly like film school kids, they talk about wanting to be a director or something. I'm like, that's great but you gotta be able to do a lot more than be a director. You gotta be a salesperson because who the fuck is gonna sell this if not you? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a marketing team if you're lucky, but in order to get into those hands, you have to love this more than anybody will ever love it. And you have to talk about it and promote it. You can't be shy or shamed. You gotta scream it loud and proud because this is your fucking opportunity and shit. And some people get uncomfortable when you say like sales or something like that, but it's like, you're selling yourself and you're selling your art. You're asking people to separate with that, which means almost the most to them in this life, their fucking money. And they can spend that money in a zillion places that'll make them happy. And you're like, yeah, but spend it over here, man. You gotta convince people that you're worth the investment. And the only way to do that is if you believe in self first and build up for self first. So you guys can literally look your client square in the eye and be like, fuck you telling me you won't do a podcast. I literally do a podcast. And every fucking actually, week, every and, week for three build, years. That's a long ass fucking tale. Like this is episode 150. Do you ever think you'd ever do anything 150 times in a row? No. You know what I'm saying? And you also have something, it's a weird bragging right too, where you yeah. could be like, I have a podcast. Now we live in a world where everyone says that and shit, but now a numbers world. So people like how many, po you got podcasts, how many episodes you got? To say 150, that makes people go like, Jesus, you're committed. Yeah. That's serious podcast. That's not somebody who dipped in for 12 episodes and fucked off. That's a commitment. If I'm your clients and I don't have a podcast at this point, I'm not paying close attention and I'm not a very good client, man. Like you guys Actually, are our clients ask us to come on. It's not even like we initially did this as a way to give our clients an opportunity to tell their stories and to talk to people like you. Yeah, this is what the thinking was, right? Like it's a great marketing tool for us. So and and and, you know, now other PR firms pitch us with their clients to come Very onto meta. our show. It's That's really what I'm saying, man. That's what I'm saying. Like you you didn't mean to, but you're slowly building a side business, a completely side business mm -hmm. that's so viable one day. It's it's not inconceivable that it becomes the primary business.
It's all about passion, how much you put in it. You don't have to be the best in the world at anything, kids. There are people in this world who are the best in the world. They're born, put on this earth to do a thing. Wayne Gretzky obviously was born to be a fucking hockey player and shit. But just because we're not all as good as Gretzky doesn't mean we also don't get to play. So like, sing your song. Don't worry if it's the greatest fucking song because I, I hear, I'll promise you this much, to someone, it will be the greatest fucking song that they ever heard and stuff. But don't worry about being the best. Don't worry about having to polish. Like my kid is finally, after 12 years I've been podcasting, 13 since 2007, and I've had her on my podcast, the other day, she was like, I was thinking about starting a podcast. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You've come to the my right legacy. guy. So my wife, it's actually my wife started a podcast uh, a couple of months ago, and it's all about food and travel and mindfulness. And it's great, you know, and it, it's like she saw us doing this and she said, I want to do that. And like Shay, who is producing this, produces her show. It's fucking great, man. I love it. All and about consistency. Anybody can have something as long as you keep your expectations in place and you deliver consistently. Like mm -hmm. you can't go into this going, I'm going to get rich. Like that's then it becomes mm -hmm. a disappointment. Um, you go into this going, I can't believe I get to make my own fucking show. That was never going to happen in this lifetime. And I don't have to ask anybody and I can talk to anybody I want. And I'm the fucking co-host front and center and shit like that. That's why you do it because it's a passion project. And then hundred percent, if it gravitates toward like, Hey, I can make a living out of this. You know, you should take ads if you can, if you've got an audience or we have an audience, but we don't take ads. We actually intentionally don't take ads right now because we don't want to be beholden to anybody. It's my company. I can do whatever the fuck I want with it. And we do, Ann and I do this because we love it. Like every week. At a girl. Yeah. I mean, seriously, this is, you, you know, you, you were talking about your, your way to decompress or unwind. When we tape this, this is that for me. This is that moment where well, it's I get also to usually just Fridays at three. <laughs> yeah, this as well, and it's also I would imagine after a week of dealing with work, yeah. and sometimes in work, like even no matter where you are, even if you own the fucking place, you don't get to control your environment, what you your input, uh, the, the amount of data that you have to process. For this window of time, you utterly control this, and that has to feel like a great way to end the work week where you're just like, oh, you can, you can un, un, in, like unwind, you can unload if you want and be like, these are the things that happen, but it allows you to fucking completely control the events of that recording time, which is a great way to go into a weekend. Like ending, you know, the, the way the weekend is structured is so fucked up because shit happens on Friday and you start off Friday and most of Saturday being that fucking piece of shit, like it still carries through. So to be able to have like this kind of like, aperitif, if you will, that palate cleanser of like my work week's done. We're going to talk about some shit here. I'm going to do a show where I'm completely in charge. I bet you head into the rest of your Fridays and your Saturdays like more composed and in control. Work has been left behind because you did the thing that, that was the work, work reward. Like it's almost like we get to work five days and then we get to record a podcast. That's a smart way to do it. And it's, the other thing is, you know, we're, it, it, it has grown to the point where we actually have an influence on the cannabis industry. You know, people care about what we say and who we're talking to. And it moves like we work with mostly public cannabis companies. Stocks move because of what we talk about and people make investing decisions. And that was 
a hope, but never an objective. Our objective was just to have fun. Story behind the story is that you guys must get so much free weed. <laughs> <laughs> Not yes, that do. much, actually. Oh, I mean, oh, I get so more much? than you because I'm in California. Right. But they ship it to me. They will mail it to me in New York and New Jersey. By the way, what's the deal about Jersey and weed? Because it, there are so many that come from New Jersey, you know, and it's not just guys like you who have your own brands and we have to you have to promote, you know, your brands because this is that moment. But but, you know, you look at guys like Chris Crane, who's from New Jersey and Beth. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. I love it. Snoogans, Snoochie Boochies. And uh, well, who's the other one? Uh, Berserker. Berserker kids. Uh, yes. It's powered by caviar gold. It's amazing fucking weed, but it's not like if you've never fucked with weed, this is not the weed you first fuck with. This is like, I, I'm, this ain't even a commercial or an overhype. This is what stoners smoke to get high. It's, it's incredible. Like what's the THC count on this motherfucker? Um, it yeah. is fifth. What is that? Uh, it was THC. pretty high. It was like, 45.4 THC oh in this joint. So it, it's it like, it, it's this is an indica. And so like a lot of people smoke them, go right the fuck out. What I like to do is smoke them and start my day. Cause then the day is something of a challenge where I'm like, I gotta get through this. Cause they're pretty fucking intense. But that's not the indica one. You're, you're that the one's indica. The, the, the oh, but what do you smoke is, in the morning? Uh, I generally, I'm a sativa guy, but when I want to like challenge myself, I'll start with an indica <laughs> in the morning. I maintain my high throughout the day with sativa, which is this one. It's the snoochie boochies. These are pre-rolls. They also do jars of, of, of nug. Caviar gold, is, those are the cats that make our weed. They make this incredibly potent infused weed that's just like phenomenal. Where, um, so where can people so get this it? is sativa and it also pumps up with CBD. It's got like, this one is, Let's see the THC and CBD ratio. THC, it's 12, no, 17. Sorry, the writing's small. And CBD, it's 400. It's pumped up with like 400 uh, milligrams of CBD. So Mike, Caviar Mike, who runs Caviar, the company that makes our stuff, um, is a magician with weed. He used to smoke himself and smoke dispensary weed. And he said one day he couldn't get high anymore. And it irritated him. So he started fucking with the plant and, and getting into the plant. He became kind of a horticulturalist. And so he found a way to like suck the plant out of itself and reinfuse it into the plant. That's what that those joints are. So it's incredibly potent fucking weed. And and now like Canada, was, they don't let oils or they didn't for distillates for a while or infused weed. They just passed a law recently where they're like, that can come and play too. So I guess Mike's bringing our stuff up there next. Um, but yeah, so I, I am in the weed space myself. Um, and, Where can and, people get it? Uh, or in Los Angeles, they got it at Herbarium. Uh -huh. um, it, let me see, what are the states that he's in? He's in California, he's in Oklahoma. Um, I think he's in Colorado now. It's in a, a couple weed legal states. Thing is, you can't make it here, of course, and ship it across state lines, it's yep. legal. So Mike has to partner up with somebody who has a license in every state. And because of the process, it's machines he builds himself. He then goes to that place for like two months, works with the people to show him how it all comes together before he gets to come home. So it's a so, longer process. He can't just like turn on the switch from state no, to state. No, we know. 
We have clients in all of the weed legal states. And if you want to introduce him to us, we can help him get into Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, wherever you guys want, we can help. He's uh, he's a a great guy and he's a self-made man. I love his backstory. It's crazy and stuff. Uh, And the fact that he became like, like he, he just by frustration of like, I can't get high anymore. He got deeper into it and it became his passion, his livelihood and stuff is really great guy. And their product is incredible. Like, and when you say it to people in the weed space, like caviar gold, they're like, oh, I know, I know caviar gold. Like Like I found that it- the Rolls Royce of weed. Yeah, it had a a reputation. So I was honored when I met the guy because this was the weed that I was smoking. I was already smoking caviar on a regular basis. So somebody was like, I could introduce you to Mike. And when I met him, I was like, you know what, man? <clears throat> we got this movie, Jane Silent Bob Reboot. And in the movie, they got three brands of weeds, three strains, Snoogans, uh, Snoochie Boochies, and Berserker. Uh, you know, a, a, a sativa, a, 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 a hybrid, and, a, and an indica. So I wanted to have him like in the real world when the movie came out, man. Can we do that? And he's like, we could hook that up. And within two months, bam, he turned around this, you know, and started making weed. So for me, I was like, I wasn't even like, I want to get rich in the weed space. I was just like, I would love, I go to herbarium on a regular basis. So I was like, I'd love to be able to walk in and buy one of my joints and stuff and have it in time with the movie. So it all worked out beautifully, man. So uh, if I know here in town, herbarium is where we sell this. Um, You can find out uh, probably on a caviar gold's website, where else it is. Um, There's definitely other stores Um, in Somar. There's Dr. Green thumbs because I went and did uh, appearance there and did photos and stuff like that. That's Be Real Shop. So um, it, it's definitely a, a around. Um, but I guess I should come up with a, we, a website that puts this information on it. We'll Never stick it on the on the uh, the show notes. In the show notes, yeah. yeah. Sweet, sweet. But yeah, it's it's I I moved into the space, you know, first as a fan, and now we're in the space like uh, as a business, so to speak. But it was always kind of not about like let's get weed rich, but more about like, let's have a pre-roll with our pictures on it. Like, it's kind of whorish, like, <laughs> you know. No, it's not. It's like, you I, can, I why not? so many like drawings on single, you know, on single joints that I buy, pre-rolls and stuff. And, you know, I told Mike when it was right here, he sat here in this office and we were talking and I was just like, could, could me and Jay be on the package? And he's just like, why would we do it otherwise? Yeah. And I'm like, excellent point. <laughs> So there's a real thrill to it. It's nice to be able to whip it out and like hand somebody. It's like my card, you know, and you give them a joint. Um, and uh, it, and I love um, being in the weed space. I've been to a couple of the shows. I've been to the Emerald Cup now. Uh, they're definitely my people. Um, what a lovely bunch. I've never seen anyone get into a scuffle at one of these events, man. Everyone's so chill and everyone's so smart. Um, I went to one weed show, I forget which one, was it Champs? I forget which one, but it was more of a trade show in in Vegas where I was like, oh, we're gonna get some free samples and fuck it, it's gonna be weed galore. And it was literally just industry. It was like, here is a $72 million conveyor system for your yep. for your, your giant grow house. Like, yep. it's legit. It's not a bunch of people walking around giggling and being like, hey, let's grow weed. Like, this is a giant fucking business, man. It's like, mm-hmm. no joke. But I've also been to the shows that are just like, we love weed, and they welcome us. Naturally, me and Jay like have a, you know, footing in the space because of those characters and stuff. Thank God that like I eventually became a stoner because otherwise I would never. I'd feel like such a poser in those spaces. Because <laughs> when I wrote those movies, like I I didn't smoke a lot of weed. I smoked weed like maybe five times in my entire life. Most of the stuff in 
Clerks, Mall Rats, Chasing Amy, Jane, Silent Bob, Strike Back, um, that are about weed come from other weed movies or like some shit I picked up from Jason when he was briefly a stoner. So Jay and Silent Bob reboot, as far as I'm concerned, is my first true viewers universe stoner movie because it is riddled with fucking pot humor and accurate pot humor. Not I didn't just, notice. I can tell oh, you because they all went right over my head. I'm so proud of that one, man. Like as we were making that, I was like, this is a true stoner movie. Like they always told me that Strike Back was a stoner movie. And I was like, it wasn't made by a stoner. The guy never smoked weed. But this one, it's just, it's it's like caviar gold. It's infused with weed, man. And I was so delighted to be able to play with those characters in the right mindset finally. You know, it, it's it felt like I felt like a bit of a poser. So now being in the weed space professionally. I don't feel like a fly by night or just like, I'm just trying to cash in, you know, to get rich or something. We've been in the space, whether we knew it or not for a long time. And I've personally been in the space as a, as a guy who imbibes on the regular for 10 years, over 10 years at this point. We talked earlier about, uh, normalizing, you know, and, and you've become a, you know, a key figure in that are, do you see more, um, no, more normalizing of it in, in your circles and your like people actually saying like, yes, I do this. I mean, I'm sure it was done. I mean, the black market is still thriving and you know, people do it, but like, is it now a little bit more? Okay. I mean, I'm seeing it just in the business that we have, but it's incredibly okay. I remember here's a conversation that'll illustrate it. A couple of years ago, uh, they were making Ant-Man. Edgar Wright was going to be the director. He had written the script. Edgar Wright was going to make it. Then Edgar Wright, like, and Marvel parted ways. And so there was a week where every, you know, writer was going in and, and director to, for a pitch, you know, to come up with an Ant-Man and stuff. <laughs> so I was talking to my agent and my agent was telling me, I was like, what you doing this week? And he's like, oh man, these guys, these guys, Ant-Man, they're trying, we're trying to staff Ant-Man and stuff because Edgar's gone. And I go, hey man, like, I don't want the job. I would never do the job, but like, I'm just curious, like, how come like they don't ever call me? Like, cause I, I make I comic book references all the time. And like, I constantly like, you know, mall rats, like fucking, I, I don't know. I'm out there. We got a show called comic book, man. I think it was around that time. So I was like, why? I mean, I don't care, but just out of curiosity, why don't you think they ever call me? And my agent goes point blank. He goes, yeah, they're going to call the stoner guy to direct their Disney movie. Are you crazy? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, all right. And that made absolute fucking sense to me. I was like, I guess so. That makes sense. You, you know, you're yeah, but Warner Brothers called. is willing to take you and hand hand Supergirl to you. You know, that's, I mean, that's the thing. The difference between when he made that statement and now is that nobody gives a fuck. Like, you know, I'm, I'm working for Netflix and Mattel making Masters of the Universe. And I'm a guy who's out loud and proud about being a fucking stoner, like imbibing yeah. weed all the time. Doesn't matter. I've directed episodes of The Flash, uh, Supergirl, you know, while up there in Vancouver going like, woohoo, there's lots of weed and we're all enjoying ourselves and stuff. Doesn't matter. People don't give a shit anymore. Like the, the it has changed incredibly. Now, I know that's like, you know, we breathe rarefied air. We're in the arts or whatever the fuck. And I'm sure like, you know, there are a lot of people in the audience going, buddy, I can't fucking smoke a joint. They'll test my hair and shit. I don't work in an industry where they test my hair to see if I've imbibed uh, al uh, alcohol or weed because I don't operate heavy machinery or anything like that or do anything all that important. But I have seen 
a, a much more relaxed attitude, particularly since the whole fucking state went legal. Mm-hmm. Once California went legal, all that pretense of like, they can't hire you, you smoke weed. It's like, what? What are you, crazy? Fucking they hire Seth Rogen all the time. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, for me, that's I've seen it become far more uh, permissible uh, and far more accepted. I mean, but then again, I live in California and stuff, and we were already in well acceptance of it. I but mean, Oklahoma is like the biggest growing weed state there is. So that's where that's where had. Mike set up a caviar yeah. gold shop in fucking Oklahoma. That blew my hair back. I was like, Oklahoma, the, the Oklahoma I know. And he's like, yeah, they're weed legal and stuff. That red state. So it's, it's I, literally I, I the, the fastest moment, growing medical state in the country. Is it? That's incredible. Yeah. The, um, the, the thing you referenced before, though, like about normalizing it and stuff. And thank you for the compliment. I, I don't I don't think I did help normalize it. I mean, I, I talked about it a lot because when I became a stoner, you know, any recent stoner is like, let me tell you. And like, all <laughs> I talked about was weed. But I remember a time on Smodcast, we've been doing that podcast, Smodcast for many years, since 2007 we started. And I remember when I started smoking weed, I didn't reveal it for a long fucking time. I would smoke cigarettes on the show, so you would just always hear me smoking something. And then I started, I stopped smoking cigarettes and started smoking weed on the regular. And the ideas in the show started getting loftier and it started getting more stream of consciousness and more navel gazily and stuff like that. And I was worried that people would find out that my audience, particularly, this is so, this is how fucking stupid I am. The guy who made Jay and Silent Bob <laughs> was really worried that if his audience found out he was a stoner, they would lose respect for him. Um, so I didn't want to tell anybody at first. And then one day, I, I think the episode is called Smod Kush, and it's where I come out of the green closet, so to speak. And I'm like, okay, for the last blah, 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 I've been a total weed smoker. I smoke weed during these shows. Um, I'm not putting it down. Like, this is my manifesto and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, there were a few people that jumped ship for the next two years who were like, I don't like him now that he's a stoner. I don't like him. A lot of other people were just like, where's the, where are we going now? Cause I, I didn't see this coming. And like, it led to more adventurous shit. It led to me like making red state or Tusk especially and stuff like that. And it led to all the podcasting. So there was a transition I saw, you know, at least from my agent's point of view, where you couldn't get hired by a major organization, even if you wanted to, because you're a dirty stoner, to fucking, I work. I, I, you know, the weird thing, the greatest triumph for me was I was hired by Disney to create a series for Disney Plus called Kingdom Keepers. And it didn't wind up going uh, because the, for not because of any other reason, but an internal kind of like, we're, we don't, we're not going to do this. But I got hired and they paid me to do this thing and we got real close to production on it, real close to actually shooting it, met with producers, went through the effects and all that shit. And it was going to be set at Disneyland and stuff. It's what happens in the park after the park closes. Special effects galore. All the Disney characters that you could fucking play with, including Mickey Mouse as a main character. And when I finished my outline and got hired for the job by Disney themselves, like I called up my agent and I was just like, I don't think they care anymore. <laughs> I, I'm a stoner. Yeah. They just, they didn't just let. They didn't. This ain't Ant Man. They gave me fucking Mickey Mouse, bro. Yeah. So Steamboat Willie was definitely high. I agree, 100. percent That's why it's in black and white. You can't see the green. So it's, it was a, it was a, a weird transition. But one day, it just became fine. And it's when this state went legal. I think was the line because then there was nothing left. If you're gonna be like, hey, you can't be a stoner. 
Then you can't, you tell people I can't drink, you know, now it's the same fucking thing. It's an aggregate. So it's, it's the acceptance. I watched it happen, but I remember being scared of putting it forward because there was a time where somebody would judge you for it. Um, but that time doesn't seem to be anymore. I mean, I'm sure there are parts in the country where I get judged for it. And let me tell you, I still get a tweet from now and then. They're not just judging like, you for that, man. I promise you. That's probably not. The country. But so, it's an easy you know, dividing line for people that don't like me either to just be like, oh, ever since he's a stoner, I don't yeah. fucking like him or something. But I got to be did honest, ever, ever since I became a stoner, I like me a lot more. Did you ever talk with Stan Lee about it? Because, I mean, there's no way that him and Ditko weren't on something when they were creating all of those characters. Never. It's weird. It never came up. I mean, for years I wasn't a stoner, so I never thought to come up. And then when I became a stoner – I didn't I didn't want to tell him just in case he was like, Kevin, what are you doing the wacky weed for? You know, I didn't want him to disapprove. So I never brought it up with him. I mean, he figured it out over time <laughs> um, just by standing next to me. You know, I have a pig pen like cloud that emanates from me and stuff. But, um, yeah, we never had a conversation. I was never like, come on, man. Tell me that fucking the silver surfer didn't come from something, you know. Right. Or Spider-Man. I mean, come on. A kid from Queens gets bit by a radioactive spider and. Like there must have been it's either weed, mushrooms or LSD because that was that time frame. Yeah. I wonder, man. I wonder. I mean, I wouldn't put past him. He was he was everything you hoped he would be and more. Um, he was like real life Willy Wonka. Um, but it wasn't like he was a sheltered man. Like he'd been out there in the world and stuff. And he lived in California for like since the late 70s. So what are the chances, right, that he yeah. didn't smoke right. weed? So you and I, or actually the three of us, have another area of overlap. We launched Legion M in 2016 for oh, Paul and Jeff. Yeah. So when they were on CNBC, that was us. We put them on CNBC. We got them in Business right. Week and Fortune. So can you talk That's about nice constant? That's a really nice thing. Well done, kids. That's what we do for, like, we're not the guys to oh, get to variety. Jobs. But if you want to be on C, yeah, that's what we get paid for. You know, true. That's the shit that pays for this. That's why right. we don't take sponsors. That's why we don't have ads because we get guys like Jeff and, and Paul to pay us to get them on CNBC. Um, right. You started out as a guerrilla filmmaker. Like Clerks was like literally funded out of your pocket. Could you – if you were to talk to somebody today, like mm -hmm. somebody who wants to make something like that, you shot on film. Now they're shooting on digital. What would you tell somebody who wants to go make – their version of clerks right now like if uh, harmony corinne was going to make kids now what would you tell him harmony corinne once said uh, if kevin smith is the voice of my generation then i'm going to kill myself so I don't, I don't think harmony would ever oh it's not a good guy <laughs> ever take any advice from the likes of me um but who would i tell like a current day filmmaker or somebody who's like i'm thinking about doing this uh, first thing I'd say is you can absolutely do it because if I could do it, you could do it because I'm a chimp and I figured this shit out. So <laughs> trust me, you got this. Go do it. It's going to be fun. Um, the next thing I tell them is um, what's the, the most valuable currency you can possibly spend in this life? Um, you already have. It's your voice. That is your very unique perspective, the prism through which you see the entire world. It's what makes you uniquely you. That's what separates you from anybody else as a storyteller. So your voice is your currency. Don't make a movie that like, oh, this worked over there. We're going to do it because they did it and shit. Like rather fail, you know, on the on the 
fucking cross of something new than live um, just by doing the same old fucking thing at the end of the day, particularly if what you want to do or say hasn't been done or said before. Honor that, you know, it's like chase that because that's what's going to people are going to react to. You can't guarantee any audience in this life. You cannot. I don't care what fucking movie you are. You cannot guarantee that anyone will show up. Even Kevin Feige, who has given us the great Marvel Universe films. I guarantee you, man, and each one of those have made close to a billion, if not more, and stuff like that. I Even when the night before Avengers Endgame, the highest grossing film of all time, came out, I guarantee you Kevin Feige still clenched his asshole, man, going like, <laughs> I hope this shit works, because you have no guarantees the audience will show up or something could happen. You couldn't, nobody could have bet on a fucking pandemic and bam, that just kills any box office because we're not going to the movie. So you don't know. Since you can't guarantee anybody showing up, let alone satisfying any audience, because that's the next step, right? Getting them to show up and then hoping they like the shit. You can't guarantee that with anybody except one person, and that is yourself as the storyteller. So it's most important to make something that you love from top to bottom all the way through that is uniquely fucking yours, man, that you're happy to die on the cross for and stuff. Because in a world where you can't guarantee anyone's going to like what you do, you know you have at least one fucking giant fan. And you know that you did the right thing. Whether it connects with other people and or not, that's luck and timing. That's people spending marketing dollars. That is beyond your fucking control as a storyteller. The only thing that you can control is the story you're telling. So don't shortchange that story by doing something safe. Or don't shortchange that story by telling, uh, you know, something that is beneath you. And I don't mean beneath you like making a lesser movie. I mean, give them you. Don't hide. Fucking put yourself out there. If you're going to be an artist, that's what it's about and stuff. Sing your fucking song because that's what's going to set you apart. There's somebody's going to hear the thing you said that I cannot say, that these two can't say, that everyone out there can't say. The one lone thing that you can express that they're going to be like, that's fucking it. That's the money. Because I guarantee you, all the people out here in Los Angeles and Hollywood, they're not looking for me. They've heard every variation of a story I could fucking tell. They're like, it's clerks over and over again. So they know they'll never get a new trick out of me. What they're praying for is you. They dream about the motherfucker who has not walked through the door yet. The person who's going to walk through the door with the story nobody's ever fucking heard before. And that's going to be like, my God, not only is that compelling, I bet you we can make money off that. They dream about you. They don't want to make sequels, remakes, and reboots all the time. They dream of making the great American novel, of helping bringing the great American novel to the screen, something that will capture both the heart and the wallet. So who's going to give them that? Not me. I've been in this business 26 years. I showed them all my fucking tricks. Is you. It's somebody who hasn't shown them what they can do yet. You are the fucking hope. You are the future. And the only way you get there is by singing your very specific individualistic song. The thing that only you can say. That is incredibly valuable. Never sell out on that. Spend that currency. It makes all the difference. So we ask everybody the same question which is, you know, I believe deeply that success is the child of failure, right? You don't learn from why you won. You learn from why you lost. Agreed. Can you talk, how, talk about a failure that shaped Kevin? What was something that you totally fucked up? You said, I'm never coming back from this. And how did you come back? And how did it make you the success you are? 
Uh, Mall Rats, our second movie out. Like, you know, Clerks, everybody. I fucking fucking love that movie. I know. Really? That's a favorite? I love it as well. I'm a Jersey boy, so it speaks to me. (laughs) I love it as well, but when it came out, the whole world was like, huh? If they even heard about it and shit. Clerks was embraced by everybody. It was everybody's best friend. It was like you were the cool new kid at school and shit. And so, you know, the second time up was mall rats. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to make clerks in a mall, essentially. Two guys just hanging out and shit, uh, just like I used to at the mall all the time and whatnot. I'm going to make my version of a John Hughes, John Landis kind of movie, kind of movies I grew up watching and stuff. And nobody went for it whatsoever. And the reviews were fucking atrocious, man. Like, really, the L.A. Times, Kenny Turan, the L.A. Times, never forget, 25 years ago, I still remember it word for word. He goes... If the if Sundance or the AFI ever offer a course on what not to do as a second movie, Mallrats should be at the heart of the curriculum. Um, and I was roundly fucking slapped for uh, for being a sophomore slump, a sophomore jinx. Uh, you know, the movie was fucking terrible. This is what happens when you give these Sundance kids real money. They spend it on shit like Mallrats. And when we made that movie, I thought we were doing something kind of cool, man. I was like, I think this is going to be good and stuff. But I conflated financial success with success. Like, we didn't have the box office. It didn't connect in when we were in theaters and shit. We went to video very quickly. And on video, that's where it's found its audience. And on cable, and fucking became a movie that everybody has seen. So much so that when I tell people, like, Mallrats was a big flop. It only made $2 million at the box office on a $5 million budget. And they're like, it can't be a flop. I own it on DVD. And you're like... <laughs> These things have nothing to do with one another, but thank you very much. People's perception outside of the filmmaker completely different. For years, I carried Mallrats like a cross. Critics hated it. It didn't make money. Oh, woe is me and stuff. And I make fun of it the way I make fun of like yoga hosers now and stuff like that. And then something weird happened. Ten years after Mallrats came out, I started noticing that like the only person saying bad shit about Mallrats anymore was me. And mostly everybody else was singing its fucking praises. And I used to have to argue to people that, no, it was a, not a success. And people would tell you how it's their favorite fucking movie. And that became the movie that most people would come up to me and talk about. They weren't coming up to me and talking about Clerks. They weren't coming up to me and talking about Chasing Amy They would or Dogma. They would come up to me and talk about Mallrats. You made Mallrats, right? Fucking love that movie and shit. And I found out it had an audience and I wasn't wrong. I wasn't bad for making that movie. We didn't make a mistake like all the fucking critics had written about us. Like it wasn't a waste of time. It became the movie that like elevated my career and my relevancy, my relevancy in the fucking business and pop culture years down the road. Um, in as much as they reference it in Captain Marvel, you know, Stan's reading the Mallrats script and he's doing his Mallrats lines and stuff like that because the movie contains the first Stan Lee cameo. It's a movie that's predicated with a, on a world in which everybody knows who fucking Stan Lee is. And in 1995, that was not the case. But by 2010, 2015, you better fucking believe we lived in that world. So the movie aged incredibly well. It was not by design. It was not because I was smart. I just made the movie that I desperately wanted to make in that moment. And in the moment, people in charge were like, this fucking blows. And 10 years later, the people who make the taste, um, all people who kind of form the pop culture army, people who turn comic book movies into the number one movies and turn comic book culture into our current day culture, since it was a movie they grew up with, since it was a movie that was kind of about them, they recognized themselves and the characters and whatnot, 
it was theirs. It made the trip into the present. So making that movie I was told was wrong. And yet that movie gives me more credibility, clout. Um, uh, people come ask me about fucking comic book movies, even though I've never made any myself, like seriously, it's because of the long roots and because in mall rats, we talk about, uh, Marvel comics and we talk about comic book movies and Brody breaks down Superman and stuff like that. That's what the internet became. And that's what we do to waste our time on the internet. So the movie wound up looking prescient or better yet, again, not my intention, but is timely. Even though there's no appearance of a fucking cell phone in it, you can watch Mallrats and you don't feel like it's a 25-year-old wow. fucking movie because yeah. they're talking about comic book movies, which is what everyone's talking about at this point. The only thing that dates it in time is you're like, a mall? What was that? Let me look <laughs> it up on Amazon. That's about all. So for me, it was Mallrats and coming to learn that like, I wasn't, I didn't fuck up by making Mallrats just because it didn't work the way I wanted to in the moment. Um, it didn't mean that it didn't age into this incredibly valuable asset in my filmography that I can still eat out on today. So much so that I just finished the script for Twilight of the Mallrats. We're going to make a Mallrats too, because even though Mallrats has paid untold dividends and has lived, lived this healthy life beyond what I imagined it possibly could. Now I just want to fucking go back and see if like, I've learned every possible lesson I can from Mallrats. Now I want to do it again, knowing what I know, you know what I'm saying? Like now I know how Mallrats went. I want to see if I can kind of make Twilight of the Mallrats a success in the way that Mallrats was a failure. You know what I'm saying? I think now it connects with an audience instantly, not slowly over a course of 10 years. Um, but then you run the course of why, the risk rather of if it's embraced widely, that then you lose uh, cult credibility, where people are like, well, it ain't as good as Mallrats, man. Mallrats is my fucking jam. This is like the sellout version of Mallrats. Like there's always a curse that comes along with every blessing, but I'll be happy to collect that curse if that was the indeed the blessing. So hopefully we'll be making, once we get out of quarantine and everyone's allowed to go back to work, that's what we're going back to work on is a Mallrats sequel. And that was the movie that for years I was told was a failure and I was bad for making and shouldn't have done it and stuff. So important lesson kids is like, nobody knows shit. No, don't let anybody tell you your fucking truth, man. Where they're like, this was a failure. You did bad and shit. I feel like a dog when fucking people are like, you did bad. It was bad. It's so fucking dumb. Especially when I've met people over the course of my life who were like, oh my God, Mallrats saved my life in high school, here's why. And they tell you this incredibly moving story about how like they're being literal, not even in this like kind of like, oh, Mallrats <laughs> saved my life. Like, oh, I was gonna kill myself, but fucking Brody Bruce was the only guy I identified with. Like shit like that, man, which blows your fucking hair back. So I learned from Mallrats that like, nobody tells me what a failure is or how I've failed unless I think it's a failure. And what I've learned over the course of all these years making movies is the only failure is not doing the fucking thing. So do the fucking thing, do your fucking thing. And don't worry about what happens in the moment. It may be wonderful, it may be shit. I've been to both ends of the spectrum, kids. The only thing that makes a fucking difference is time. And time only comes when you make the thing in the first place and then start moving forward from it. Cause then it's always there in your past. You just keep moving forward, making as many self-expressions as you possibly can. And then one day we all fucking die. That's it. You've got this beautiful gift of self-expression that an animal doesn't. You go into the woods, man. Motherfuckers who hunt deer and shit like that, 
you point a fucking gun at a deer, a deer is not going to tell you its life story and why you should fucking let it live and stuff. They don't have that ability. Unfortunately, a fucking deer gets killed by some asshole hunter. But somebody comes to your house with a fucking shotgun, does the same thing to you. You can be like, wait a second, man. I got a wife and kid. Let me tell you my life story. You can possibly fucking talk them out of that shit, man, because we have the ability to communicate in that way. Never take self-expression for granted. Um, always uh, practice it whenever you can. And don't ever let anybody tell you that you quote unquote fucking failed in doing so. Failure is not self-expressing. Dude, that was fucking awesome. Um, you have been so unbelievably generous with your time. Um, Wait, are you on yeah, the, the sure. graduation circuit? Cause I mean, I'd come out of graduating from college, like psyched. After hearing you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, you're so sweet. I did that once or twice back in the day. Um, Illinois Wesleyan gave me an honorary degree. And and uh, Montclair, was it Montclair? No. Yes, Montclair? Montclair State. Pretty sure on my wall I have a degree from Montclair State because I spoke there at one of their commencement ceremonies. So I got an honorary degree from them nice. as well. Um, yeah, it's, that's, it's, it's fun. Like, and, and also with age, with time, you get to do that. Like, I remember I was doing college speeches like five years into my career. And that's because the kids in college were into like clerks and mall rats and shit. And so like, get him. But you know, back then but you're 25. Like what, I mean, what how am I going to tell them? Like, are you imparting? Exactly. I'm making yeah. a bunch of jokes. I'm telling them yeah. to chase their dreams. But now, holy fuck, man, I could level them. You're an making audience. a bunch of jokes and telling them to chase their dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but with way more words. <laughs> and more gravitas, right? Absolutely. Um, with time on my side, with some white feeling? in my beard. Oh, dude, you don't even know. And I'm the same age as you and I'm all white, you know? Um, how are you dealing with COVID? I thought you had that light He's blonde. blonde. You know? No, there's it's it's white, dude. I'm the fucking Jewish hipster Santa. Trust me. <laughs> um, so you're, you know, we're we're all kind of trapped in our houses because mm -hmm. of this COVID shit. How are you dealing? And and you keep smoking, and it's it makes me nervous as a fan and somebody who actually cares about you. This is a respiratory illness, and yeah. you had a massive heart attack. Why don't you skip to fucking edibles or tinctures or something else? I'm not really into them. I'm a flower man. But in terms of the COVID of it all, um, I'm going to go grab a test because now they're like saying you can go pay 150 bucks, see blah, blah, blah. So we're going to line up for a test or whatever. Fuck. Uh, I want to see. I want to take the test that tells me if I had it because I'm pretty yeah. sure I had Antibodies. it. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure I had it when I was on tour because there was a moment like where I got knocked the fuck out. And it wasn't it wasn't long, it was brief, but like I got taken down in a way I never felt before, not since the fucking heart attack, but it wasn't a heart thing and shit. So I'm relatively sure I had. I was also like, since we were on tour going across the country, I went over to England around Christmas time and stuff. So I did some shows there, but we were like, our last show of the tour was in New Orleans the day after Mardi Gras. So I can't see how the fuck I haven't been exposed to it, um, yeah. but I'm gonna I'm gonna test it out. But in terms of smoking post heart attack, that hasn't changed at all. My doctor told me I didn't have to, and I mean, he wasn't giving me special dispensation. He was just like, no, you don't have to worry about that as much. They all want me to use a filter though. They're like, it'd be so much better if you get a filter on that fucker. But um, it's tough to, you know, we're we're locked down. It's tough to find a filter. Who's the one person that you haven't worked with yet that you're dying to work with? Like, I don't care if it's a musician, if it's an actor, it could be a politician, but a there's somebody like, I want that motherfucker in my, my next 
piece of content, whether it's a podcast, a film, you name it. I mean, I don't know. There are people that you whim- whimsy or dream about, like, oh, it'd be cool to work with those people. But, you know, I'd not certainly to the point where I'm like, I can't do it without that person. But, you know, I've, I've always loved Bill Murray. It'd be a fucking, it'd be cool oh to, to add like Bill Murray to the repertoire to be like, oh my God, I got to watch Bill Murray do his fucking thing in person. But, you know, I, I don't really have like like anybody. I like David Byrne a lot. I've used like some Talking Heads music in the movies. Oh my God, he's having a moment Did you see right American? now. He is right? having a moment. Like he's know, American Utopia. He uh, he he did this really wonderful thing. thing I've seen from, on Broadway. You yeah. saw the show? I didn't get to see Twice. the show. Twice. My friend Malcolm saw it. He loved it and stuff. He was like, "You have to oh, go," and I was cry. gonna go. When they redid the show in the fall, I don't know if that's still going to happen now and stuff. I think he's coming back November. But um, the moment, I think, aside from that show, is he went on SNL. Yes. And it was incredible because he did um, Once in a Lifetime, which, you know, is a song going back to the fucking late 70s, for heaven's sakes, to some degree. So a bunch of kids, he just this time he did it with a. You know, the way he kind of does it now with a bunch of people playing instruments yep. and dancing and stuff. It was amazing. And it's still a mesmerizing performance. Yes. But a whole yes. new generation of kids, thanks to Twitter, like discovered him the way I discovered him. Like, I, you know, I saw a fucking trailer for Stop Making Sense, the Jonathan Demi movie on MTV in the early days. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Why is this guy wearing a giant suit? Like, it was just caught, captured my imagination and then I stayed for the music. He's a performance artist. He's a RISD kid, comes from Rhode Island School of Design and shit. So it ain't just about the music. He was always a performance artist as well. And that performance on SNL seemed to have the same effect on a whole new generation of kids because yeah. they saw a, uh, like a, a spike in sales, talking head sales and shit. Bunch of kids going, what are these guys? So I was so happy because like I love fucking David Byrne and the talking heads, man. And and the idea you that a bunch- see him on Kimmel because he did it, he did the same song with the roots and to see them all play together was, it gave me chills. And I'm friendly with Tariq, with Black Thought. Our right. kids go to school together. Um, and to see those, to see the roots and David Byrne and that audi- that that ensemble together was unbelievable. So wait, he was on Fallon with the roots or- no, no, yeah, I'm sorry, Fallon. Not yeah. Kimmel. I said Kimmel. I meant oh, Fallon. Fallon. He was on Fallon with the Roots, and it was um, just amazing. So that was twice in one week. He was on an NBC show doing that song. Good <laughs> yeah. for him. It was a smart play. You know, most people would be like, "Do a separate song," but I'm telling you, man, that watching watching him perform, and there's such there, him and the people he performed with are just coming off the tour, off the run of that show. So they were prime to like, it wasn't just a band going up and performing. And generally when bands perform, you know, it's kind of, they don't like light up. They're just doing their rock and roll thing, being cool. Him and his fucking people were like. Yeah. Like just real joy. Yeah. Oh, it was wonderful. So he is, I agree. He is having a moment right now. And, you know, it's funny. My, I told you my wife does a podcast and, she, you know, Tariq, the Black Thought from The Roots, is a huge foodie. And she talked to him about his cooking. It's un, it's like I love podcasts, man. It's, it's such did, a beautiful, it, it puts you in, in touch story. with a bunch of people that you never suspected you'd get to talk to, yeah. you know, and sometimes you get to talk to people. They're like, I've always loved your stuff about stuff that has nothing to do with their stuff. But generally speaking, like it just puts you in touch with people that you 
you know, you probably weren't going to intersect with otherwise. And then you do and find out how fucking similar they are to you. And it's inspirational because generally the people you want to talk to are people kind of done something in life that you want to do or aspire to or look up to. And then when you talk to them and find out they're not gods, they're just human beings like you who made right choices or just made not even right choices, just made a choice, period, made a move toward a thing and stuff. You know, that makes you go, oh, shit, like, you know, I'm. I'm in the same camp. I feel the same way. It invigorates you because suddenly somebody you've appreciated as a genius works the same way you do. And you're like, by that definition, am I close to genius? Like podcasting is uh, is fun. It really is. It is it's been a gift. I can tell you. And we always thank the audience for listening because, you know, you were talking about the investment of money. There's nothing more valuable than investment at time because, you know, we only have a finite amount of time and where we choose to spend it is ultimately the, the real re revelation of what we value, right? You spend time with your family, you spend time at work, but when you give time to content, it means you really care. And that's like, it, for me, it's the biggest gift. And, you know, there are times where Ann and I will be at a conference, like, like a cannabis show, and people come up to us and say, oh, you're him? That trips me out like you wouldn't like I'm I really look in the mirror and like I don't, I'm nobody, man. Like and I'm for people that have guy. to have for people that generally do PR for other people and like which means that you're putting all the attention on that other person trying to shine a spotlight on that person. It must be really gratifying for a moment or two to have somebody be like, hey, you for you. You know, as opposed yeah, mortifying. To, if by gratifying you mean mortifying, then yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you are PR. You're dying in the wool. You're like, gotta focus on them. Yeah, I don't want to focus. Well, no, it's funny. But we get, I get hate mail every now and then. And oh, yeah. I love it. Like I, I actually that's when you know you're doing well, that. man. If somebody yeah. hates you, it's like, holy shit, that means somebody's jealous of me. That means somebody aspires to be me. I've won. Yeah. Oh, I just remember <laughs> it being a weird like confluence of uh, you were talking about one of the uh, shows in Vegas and it was the we went to the MJ Biz conference in, I don't know, December, but it seems like seven years ago. And we interviewed Senator Tom Daschle, a, a fucking senator on the floor of the MJ Marijuana Business Conference. And uh, like our little podcast, he gave a half hour to, and it was like, it blew my mind. You had this like, you know, intersection of, of, you know, stoners, you had this intersection of people in the cannabis business and now politicians and celebrities. It's like, I don't know, there's no question there. It was just kind of like a cool moment. Well, I'm with you, man. But... It's like, oh, the places you'll go. Yeah. Like, you never saw yourself yeah. talking to a politician and there you are talking to politicians. It's funny when you're like, on the floor, people are like the Senate House. You're like, no, the weed show. Man. Oh no, the weed show, not the. <laughs> that was a weed show, yeah. yeah. All right, we've taken an hour and a half of your time. You are unbelievably kind and generous, um, and I like, dude. This has legitimately been a highlight for me. Um, so if you'll, Ann, can you show your sweatshirt <laughs> for a second? Because I want to okay. send one to Kevin. Um, oh, by all means. <laughs> yeah, can we send you one of those? Please do. We'll send you something yeah. from uh, Marijuana Today, which is Shay's podcast, which is actually like seven years old. So he's been in this business yeah. for a long time, the cannabis business. Yeah. And guessing. So yeah. we'll get we'll get from your your guys where to send it. And yeah. thank you so much. We'll let you know when this is going to publish. If you can tweet it or whatever, we would appreciate it. If not, happily. we'll just publicize it ourselves. So happily. Uh, Thanks for, for letting me chat about fucking weed and all things Kevin Smith. It's like my favorite subject. Anytime. Yes. Oh, and, 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 hold on. My wife is saying I have to say the name of her podcast, which is Eat Well, Travel Often. Um, it's a great title. 
It is a great, well, it's, it's the thesis that we live our lives by. Um, you know, it is, it, it sounds like that's an excellent tattoo to put on one's wrist. Eat oh, while travel. there you go, Lewis. So, this is the tattoo, I, my first and only tattoo, which is a turtle with my kids' initials. So it's oh, that's EDG fucking beautiful. That's beautiful. And DG. But you know what? My next tattoo is going to be eat well, travel often, because that is a good, that's a really good idea. Plus a really good plug for the wife. Plus you'd probably get really good plugged for just doing it. She'd be like, holy shit, you tattooed mm -hmm. my podcast on your body. Plus it'll keep her doing the podcast. You know what I'm saying? Because if you get the tattoo, yes, it's a. It's a life, it's yeah. a life lesson or a life philosophy, but like every time she sees it, she'll, she'll have to be like, I should record another episode. <laughs> <laughs> she records every week. She has, she's done like 10 episodes. She hasn't missed one. Come on over here for a second, honey. Here, can I introduce you? <laughs> I don't care. So say hi to Kevin. Lean in, How Melissa. There Lean you in. are. You're coming there in and are. out. How are you? <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, I got the earphones in, but this is my wife, Melissa. So we know the next po tattoo that you should be getting. Your husband will tell you, you all about it. Next tattoo I'm getting is eat well, travel often. Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely a Thank wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Thank Kevin. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure, such kids. a pleasure. Thanks yeah. so much. Have a great Take day. Care. Okay, a special thanks to Kevin Smith, who was unbelievably generous with his time. You know, we always talk about how much we value you giving us your time and listening and now watching us. Um, and we are unbelievably grateful to Kevin for giving us his time. Um, as always, if you want to email us, email us at greenrush at kcsa.com. Um, we'll take email, hate mail, fan mail, whatever you want to send to us. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us with the handle at the underscore greenrush or on Instagram at the greenrush underscore podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple, on Stitcher, now on YouTube as well. Um, and Shay, thank you so much for producing this episode. I know on behalf of Anne, we couldn't do this without you. We really thank you. And that's one take, Shay. Ish. One take.